Northwest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. So, Happy New Year. How's it been going? Good? Did you have fun? Lots of change in some of your lives and lots of good things going on. And and I know there's also some difficult things going on as well for some of you, and we're praying for you. So our family uh, took a little bit of break. Last week you got to hear Carrie, and I hear she did a wonderful job expressing her heart and her passion and what God's doing in her. We, we uh, wanted to have her have her first opportunity to preach here at her home church uh, as the Lord is continuing to develop her and prepare her to be a missionary. We thought this would be a great place for her to have her first experience. I so hope you enjoyed that. Over the holidays, my family and I uh, decided to forego some of our normal traditions. Um, like, for instance, we usually have a great big, just a great big feast on New Year's Day. How many of the rest of you do as well? Well, we decided to forego that and left the ham in the freezer for another time, and we went out to Buca de Beppo. We mainly for, for what left, left go, let go some of our traditions because, frankly, we just wanted to rest and play a little more. But we did keep one of them. It's, it's, uh, it's actually our three P's tradition at the home. It's uh, pizza, popcorn, and pop uh, with a movie on New Year's Eve. Uh, so after we got done celebrating here, we went home and we had that. And how many of you have seen the ads on TV for those new uh, carbonation machines where you get to see all the... We actually got one of those as a family gift for Christmas because uh, we like to put a lot of carbonation in our ju- fruit juices and make pop that way and have fun. And so we decided to use that that night, and so we were fairly carbonated out. So we, f- we decided not to do one of our normal traditions, which is to get out one of your little Martinelli sparkling grape juice or cider or whatever at Christmas, and as the ball drops, we toast each other. So since we decided we were carbonated out, Wendy decided on the spur of the moment to go set what might be a new tradition. I'm not sure. She went and grabbed some candles. So, you know, we're used to uh, candlelight services on Christmas Eve. We had a candlelight service as the ball dropped on New Year's Eve. And as the ball is dropping, she throws out this other question. She says, what's the one thing to our whole family, what's the one thing you want to pray for God to do in 2013? Now, normally, I'm kind of the big picture thinking person in our family. And a question like that on a big picture thing is something I usually am really decisive at. And I answer right away. But I was the last one to actually blow my candle out because she said we had to pray this prayer before I blew the candle out. In fact, what, what I thought was really interesting, I observed this as we were doing it, as I'm debating what the one thing is I want to pray for, I noticed that the one in our family who's normally the slowest to make a decision up was the first to blow out his candle, and I went, wow, he really knows what he wants in 2013. Well, last night we were having a discussion before we put him on a plane to go back to college this morning, and he... Uh, he said, well, uh, I didn't even hear mom ask that question. I was blowing my candle out because the hot wax was getting on my fingers and it was burning me. You know, we thought there was, I thought, man, God's doing something. There's this really great, <laughs> it's hot wax. Anyway, have you ever asked yourself that question? What's the one thing that you want to ask of God? That's the question we're going to deal with today. But before we get there, we're going to start a new series today called Three Story. And, uh, you know, last year, if you were around, we spent uh, most of the year going through the Real Jesus series where we tried to look at interaction by interaction 
Jesus in the eyewitness accounts because the, the media and many of us grew up having so many different ideas about who Jesus is. We wanted to look at who the real Jesus is based upon the eyewitness accounts. We spent most of last year doing that. We're actually going to finish the last couple hours of Jesus' life during the Lent season leading up to Easter this year. But uh, we also then switched over Christmas to a new series on, on, on stories. And we talked about how we can share our faith with others in a way that doesn't violate friendship, doesn't become so strangely awkward. It's just really real and genuine. And we talked about listening. And we also talked in that series about how we can learn to tell our story of God's interaction in our life to others in a way that's just completely consistent with friendship. We're going to continue that story theme in this series, except what you're going to, we're going to do it a little bit different. We're going to have several staff members over the next few weeks get up, and we're going to talk to you about scriptures that God used in our life to greatly shape who we are. And so we're calling it Three Story because we're going to talk about his story, we're going to talk about your story or our story, and we're going to talk about how that story can change all of our lives. So today, you know, as I start to tell some of my story... You know, I've alluded to many parts of my story in the past in illustrations or told them explicitly. You know, you've heard me talk about the four years of depression I went through years ago. And it wasn't caused by God by any stretch of the imagination. It was caused by my own unhealthiness, my own drivenness. And yet God used that time to impact my life in an amazing way about what it really means, what His grace really means. And how much he really loves me. I've talked to you about how religious and exclusionary my early faith really was. And, and, and how in, in high school when I decided to become serious about God. Uh, what that meant to me was I became very performance oriented. All about morality. And being able to rid ourselves of extinguish bad habits and replace them with good habits. And, and that became such a thing in my life that even though I don't know if I always projected this in terms of the way I treated people in my mind, what I always thought was if somebody else around me wasn't able to kick this habit and change it, then that was really just the lack of willpower and they were inferior. And it was really just this messy, weird, ugly, religious stuff going on in my life. And it was even more weird to a certain extent. I mean, during that time period, I was growing up in Minnesota, there was a couple of guys who were really well-intentioned but completely misguided who were going around to churches preaching on the fact that rock music in and of itself was evil. So in the area when I was trying to enjoy listening to the Doobie Brothers and the Eagles and all that kind of stuff, they were going around talking about how that was inherently evil. And not only it got to that point where even the religious influences, the leaders in my life around me were saying that even Andre Crouch, who was a Christian rock singer, was evil because he had the rock sound. It was just this really confusing, weird, complex, religious time of my life. And in one sense, it was a really lonely time because what I ended up doing was because I didn't want to ever be tempted by the coarse conversation or the bad music or what was termed bad music by other people or, or I didn't want to fall into sin, I distanced myself in relationship. And you see, that's what, that's what religion does. Religion forces us to distance ourselves in relationship because in religion, it's more important not to sin than it is to love people. And I look back on that time with a deep sense of sadness, but it's, the sadness is different for me now than it used to be. The sadness now for me is, oh, if I'd only known how to love, what a difference could have been made in some of the friendships 
that I had alienated and distanced myself from. It was this complex time of life. It was a time where I was full of... of I just wanted from the, from the summer before my 10th grade year, I just wanted to get out of Dodge. I wanted to get out of town. I wanted to go to college. I wanted to be rid of this place and move on. And yet, the story doesn't stop there. In fact, where the story begins for what I want to talk about today is that during that time, there was also this other aspect of even in the midst of the loneliness, even in the midst of the isolation, God, even in the midst of the unhealthiness of religion, God turned that time for me into this, the closest I can describe it to is kind of almost a long-term camp-like experience of the sweetness and this beauty of experiencing God and and remembering who he was and times of devotions and worship that were that were on average more frequently rich with his presence and a sense a real tangible sense of his presence i i can remember for instance just simple times like i used to, i grew up in a small farming community so i worked on farms and I, I went to work at 6 a.m. in the morning, and I got there, and Randy, my boss, was a slacker that day, and he was still eating breakfast, so he wasn't ready. It was a nice, cool morning, and, and I had a jean jacket on. It was going to be hot later in the day, but he had to have a jacket on in the morning. I remember waiting for him, and I, I just laid down in the dewy, dew-filled grass and looked at the clouds and began to worship God. And, and I can still, to this day, picture the sky and remember this profound sense of his love and his presence. It was just an amazing time. And there were times like that that happened. And I, I can also remember picturing myself in my room at night a lot of times after dark. I'd sit there with my reading lamp and I'd, I'd read the Bible and I'd spend some time in prayer and worship. And I remember God tangibly coming to me in ways that I understood that it was him and how much he cared and how much he loved. In fact, as I close this series in a few weeks, I'm going to tell another story, and I'll actually tell some of the encounters that I experienced in those times with God that really taught me and, and, and set the basis for me understanding a lot of lessons about how he leads us in a sense of purpose and calling and, and, and leadership. There's going to be some lessons in the next one I get up and talk about. But during one of those experiences with God, this verse was kind of burned within me, and I kind of refer to it as my life first, because God keeps bringing it back to me over and over and again. I mean, just consistently bringing it back, and it just does this work in me all the time. And it's, it's this verse that the King David wrote it, uh, and, and King David, in the midst of leading this great nation and all the complex problems and tasks of, of his family and of being a leader or the king and uh, all the things that were going on, he writes this thing and says, here's the one thing. And it's Psalm 27.4. And it says, one thing I ask of the Lord, and that is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire of him in his temple. Now, I don't know about you, but most of the time when I hear somebody say, here's the one thing that you need to do, I treat it with a lot of skepticism. Because like many of you, I've done a lot of reading of leadership books. And you'll hear all these books say, well, the one most important thing as a leader is casting vision. But I, it doesn't take me very long, and I can go through examples of leaders in business and church who are charismatic purveyors of vision, and everybody wanted to follow them, and, and, and yet they didn't produce 
good results. It was just mediocre at best, and some of them failed. So you read, you read other books, and they say, well, the one thing is the ability to create a great team environment that empowers people to love working for you and be around you and be in the best fit. And, but I can look at people in, uh, that I know of that have created that environment and, and failed or created mediocre results of the best. So it's, it's natural for us to treat one thing with suspicion, with suspicion but this one thing is... So much different than that. It's, it's, it's simple, but it's not simplistic. Today we're going to talk about more about this, about how you pick the one thing. What's the most important thing? You know, David, this uh, leader, this CEO, if you really think about it, he is turning around a failed kingship and turning it into one of the greatest empires on earth in his lifetime. Can you imagine the pressures of that? Can you imagine the pressures of his family? And he speaks to us and says, in the midst of all that, this is the one thing. I hope I can capture a bit of that for you today. Would would you just pause with me for a second and pray? Lord, we ask that you'd come to us now and that you would speak to each one of our hearts right where we're at. And Lord, you would use this, uh, this powerful text and the text itself and the story you've created in my life as well from it, Lord, to um, speak to each one of us and change our lives that we can experience all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's talk about the lessons in this text. And actually, really, the lesson is one lesson, but we're going to illustrate that in several different ways. The lesson is this. Life is all about worship. It's all about worship. In the midst of everyday demands, in the midst of people clamoring for his decisions, in the midst of people trying to manipulate him to get what they want out of him, in the midst of internal threats and external wars coming at him, David says that the most important thing that it all boils down to is worship. He says he wants to do this all the days of his life. And I think if we press David, he would write that even further and say, not just all the days, all the hours, all the moments, all the time of your life, this is the thing to focus on. Now, because we struggle so much with the religious mindset, I think a lot of us really struggle with this truth that we're going to be talking about today because uh, when we think about faith, we think about morality. We think about acceptance. We think about success. We think about what we need to be approved by God and to get his blessings. But all of life, all of faith is first and foremost about worship. We have a hard time accepting that because when the Bible says that the issue of faith and salvation is really, the Bible says it's in the person of Jesus Christ because we say, don't I have to have perfect character? Don't I have to grow? Don't I have to gain leadership, wisdom, and skills? And don't I have to uh, to be successful and have meaning? And Jesus himself makes it all about worship as well. In another text, in John 3.18, we sometimes skip over this because of the most famous verses in the Scripture is two verses earlier, but it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. He's referring to himself, Jesus. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The issue of condemnation, the issue of acceptance or not, has nothing to do with your sin. It has to do with your worship 
and whether you worship Him. Isn't it interesting? We usually think that our acceptance has everything to do with our behavior. What does that mean for us? What, is, what does worship mean for us? Well, let's, let's break it down. First, let's look at maybe just a simple, I'll just quickly give you a simple definition of worship. Worship is, a, is recognizing and ascribing ultimate value in the proper place. Ascribing ultimate value in the proper place. That's just a working definition, but let's look at it further. We look at this text and we can say from the text even that worship is about who meets our needs. Let's look at verse 1 in the context that comes up to this passage. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear, David? It says, The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, or another way to translate that devour my flesh is to say, or to slander me, to undermine me, to speak ill of me. When my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me. Even then will I be confident. Do you see the tension David is setting up for us in this introduction? He's, he's talking about this conflict within him. He's talking about this fear that he regularly has to face. He's talking about people who make threats, who try to undermine him verbally or make threats of war. And he's trying to talk about situations where he actually faces that conflict. I and mean, he's talking about all those things. And yet in the midst of it, where does he go? What's, so what's he talking about? The psalm really is, is getting at where does David go to get his needs for safety, his needs for significance, his needs for esteem, his needs for friendship, his needs for reputation met. And he talks in the context of this as saying how he can face those things without anxiety, without fear, without worry, without doubt about the outcome. Isn't that what we want in life? We don't necessarily want the difficult things to go away. We want to know that we can get through. We want to know we're going to be safe. We want to know there's going to be meaning in life through that. So many times in my life where fear creeps in. It, it, it doesn't matter how many times we've conquered sin in our life or conquered fear in our life. It doesn't matter how many times we've been brave to overcome it. The next time we face a major a major conflict in our in our marriage and it looks like things may blow apart, or major next time we face a major issue in our in our in our goals at work and we're not sure we're going to succeed and we we may fail, it doesn't matter if we faced it before. Fear still comes in. God brought this verse to me initially in my life on the heels of a several year stretch where I was succumbing to fear surrounding reputation, meaning, and financial success. You know, I know that may sound funny to some of you, and sometimes it sounds funny to me. Maybe I was just an abnormal kid that I thought this deeply in middle school and junior and high school, but but I'm not sure I really was because the more I listened to my teenage kids and, and the more I listened to your kids sometimes talking around here in different settings where I've interacted with them, kids think really deeply. Kids are wrestling on a regular basis with what's this whole life thing about? 
Where do I get significance? Where do I get meaning in life? What's my purpose in life? Why am I here? I mean, kids really do think deeply. And I hope that in our, in our ministry here, as we've set our goals, that we'll just release that depth of thinking instead of getting into our adult mindsets sometimes and thinking, ah, they're not thinking about that. For me, I was thinking seriously about this stuff at a very early age. And I knew at a very early age that God was asking me to be in vocational ministry. And I was avoiding that. I wanted to do something else. I was compulsively avoiding God. I just wanted to be a good businessman or a lawyer. I wanted to make lots of money, partially because I grew up in a home where I bragged about, my whole thing was I bragged about how big of a hole I could have in the bottom of my shoes before I had to go get a new set of shoes. I mean, I... We, that was just life, you know. If I could get the hole that big and still play basketball, you know, that was that was it. I mean, some of you grew up like that too. And so I just wanted to, but then, and then you know, a little while later, I said, well, maybe that's not it. And so I said, well, I'd love to do sports. I was always really physically active. So I decided, well, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go after tennis. If nothing else, maybe it'll give me a college scholarship. So I played tennis eight hours a day. Even when I was working on the farm in the summers, I'd go to work at six in the morning. I'd come home six or seven at night, and if and I'd play tennis till dark if I wasn't playing softball. I mean, that was just life, and I was just I I did it compulsively. And then at one moment I went, oh, okay, that's not really God's not in that. I kind of sensed that God wasn't in that. So I decided, well, okay, um, one of my uh, one of my significant influences in my life was my my band director. He was a former jazz professional musician who married a local gal and decided to settle down and teach. And he kept encouraging me, go, go be a professional musician. So I played trumpet like crazy. I sang. I played piano. I did all sorts of stuff and did well at it. And whatever I did, I did compulsively. I did it addictively. What do you ask God for? What do you seek after? What do you strive for to define your success in life? You see, it's easy for us to focus on things and ask for those things to meet our needs. It's easy for us to come up with goals and say, let's, let's be better off financially than our parents. And we strive and work really hard for that. Or it's easy for us to say, let's have a stronger marriage or a family. And we pursue that. We constantly push for that. But the reality is, We get anxious and we get fearful when any of those are threatened, don't we? Because we worship those things. Worship is about what you ascribe ultimate value to in a way that energizes and engages your whole being, mind, will, and emotions. It becomes the one thing to which all other other things will bow. And there can only be one thing in our life. You see, my struggle on New Year's Eve was this. The, the first things that came to mind were things about security, about financial prosperity, praying, wanting to pray God to really bless the church financially and to bless our home financially. Got a kid in college, you know, you need that. Uh, the next thing that came to mind was pr- asking God for growth to exceed the goals that we set for the church. We did really well this last year, but I, I'm, it's never enough. You know, we just want to exceed and we want to go. And, and then the, the third thing that came to mind was greater joy and greater blessing and greater opportunity for my family. And God confronted me again with this verse. What are the things that cause stress, worry, or anxiety that you pray and ask God about? The lists 
that you write down, the petitions you make to God to answer for your family's health or for the finances or for work or for relationships. Now, it's not wrong to pray those lists, okay? I'm not saying that today. Because we don't have to go any further than the Lord's Prayer where Jesus teaches us to pray and see that He actually encourages us to pray those lists. So that's not wrong. But the question is deciding the one thing to pray. You know, the one thing to pray doesn't negate the rightness of all those competing things or those other demands, those specifics of life. But the question is what comes to mind when you're asked to pray the one thing? Whatever comes to mind reveals where your focus of worship is at that moment. And God's invitation for us today is to check our hearts to regularly have a habit of reorienting our focus to worship Him and worship Him alone. Second, the text talks about worship is about intentionally gazing upon the beauty of God. Gazing upon the beauty of God. That's kind of abstract, isn't it? Like kind of, what does that really mean? Or, or if it's not abstract to you, then it's probably, for, like it is for me sometimes, beautifully one-dimensional. It's why I love vacations to mountains or the oceans or beautiful nature places because you get to go out and experience the awe of God in those, in those places. But it can be so much clearer, so much more every day than that. I'm going to give you two ways to look at this. First is a classic illustration used by preachers for a long time. And then the second is just a real practical, down-to-earth way. Let, the first, the illustration. Let, let's say um, that there's a woman, and she's inherited this piece of jewelry from, jewelry from her mom who got it from her grandmother, who got it from great-grandmother, who got it from great-great-grandmother. It's been passed down for a long time. And it's this beautiful, you know, old-fashioned, gaudy piece of jewelry, Right? She leaves it in her box most of the time. Every now and then she gets out and looks at it. But it's, you know, it's not her style, so she doesn't wear it. It's not current. One day she takes it out of her box and goes to one of these shows where there's all these appraisers, right? And some of you watch those shows, right? And she takes it in there and the, the appraiser gets out her little magnifying glass that jewelers use and the light and looking at it. And then all of a sudden this jeweler just kind of pauses and almost gasps. And doesn't say anything and then goes back and keeps looking at it and just looking at every fine detail forever and ever. And you can see the, the, the woman next to her going, what? 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 Is it like worth nothing or is it worth a fortune? And he goes, this is designed by a guy 200 years ago. It's got his markings who nobody's been able to master his technique before. This piece of jewelry is priceless. It's a one of a kind. Now that's just an illustration, but think about that illustration. This woman had no idea what she had. She already had so much treasure, so much beauty. And as you've watched on those shows, you can bet that her focus all of a sudden changed when she heard that word priceless, right? And isn't that so true of life. So many people believe in God. But the issue David draws us to here is not belief in God. Belief doesn't transform your life. It doesn't change our lives. Worship does. The difference between a limp-along life, just an average, normal, mundane life, 
and a transformed, a radically transformed life is not belief. It isn't even living a life of just thanksgiving and a nice life of being joyful. It is worship. You see, the world is not just made up of people who worship and those who don't. Everyone worships something. Whether you're secular or whether you're religious, you worship something. Rather, the world is divided between those people who worship things that will distort their life and worship the only proper object worthy of our worship, the one who can truly meet our needs at the depth of our being. You see, you can believe in God, yet worship financial success. And you can get it, and you might be one who gets it, and you might be in debt up to your ears and constantly nervous about where the next payment's coming from, or it may never be enough, and you're anxious and you're struggling. You can believe in God, but because you worship something else than God, it doesn't really meet the need. And your life isn't radically changed for the better. In fact, think about it. When we worship those things, when I worshiped tennis or when I worshiped those other things, I could do it eight hours a day and it was never enough. There would be a little bit of satisfaction, but it's like drugs. You, you take this and the next time you get pleasure out of it, the next time you need more and you need more and you need more and it's never enough because there's only one thing our Creator who pursues us, who pursues us with a love that is extravagant, that can meet the needs and truly meet them and get it right. Getting the one thing right. Second, worshiping, gazing on the beauty of God is even more down to earth than that. You know, in the moment of struggling over what to pray on New Year's Eve at midnight, I was vividly reminded of how it is so easy in life to focus on the things that aren't, aren't done yet, the unresolved, the, the, the imperfections that aren't fixed, that they aren't improved enough, we aren't good enough in those areas. Whatever good enough is, all of us struggle with it, right? Some of us struggle more. You know, every personality inventory I've ever taken says, Ross, you are a driven person who is visionary about refining, about changing things, and when things get stagnated, you're the person who's going to knock it off center so that thing, positive change will come in, and you're always looking to the next thing. So one of the weaknesses in my life is I, I struggle to celebrate the wins because we'll make a great win, and I'm immediately saying, well, we can improve that. We can do this better. And that's a little bit like many of us live our faith in our life and it becomes this religious thing that actually, quite frankly, throws dung on the grace of God. Because His good news is that He's freed us. He's loved us perfectly. And when we orient our worship towards Him, no matter where we're at, we can rest and we can rejoice in the beautiful good God is doing. You know, I see this so much in other people's. I've had, I've had the privilege in my position to, to watch many people's and be a part of many people's journey of faith and their growth. And I see so many, and I fall trapped to this sometimes, living life unsatisfied. You know, in my isolation in high school, it wasn't until seven, eight years later when my friendships were rich and abundant and when uh, ministry was going full tilt and the pace of life was amazingly busy but amazingly rich that I actually realized how beautiful 
that time of isolation with God really was and the good things that God was doing during that time that I had previously hated. You know, I recently had a conversation with someone who, who struggles with the same thing. They've, they've had just a couple really difficult years, and I've, I've walked and watched and walked through those couple years with them, and, and it's so easy to see the glass half full and to miss the fact that not only is the glass... See, that there is water. I think I said that wrong. But also see that the image that there's this God who has this pitcher that's a hundred million times the size of that glass just standing there waiting to pour out His goodness. And, and it's so easy to continually focus on the things that aren't good that, that, that we had to, I had to sit back on a number of times in, in this journey with this person and point out the fact that, wow, God has done this and God has done that and God used you to speak this to me and God used you to speak that to others. And, and it's sometimes it's just another reason why we need friendships in our life in this whole faith thing. Because we don't always see what God's doing. And sometimes it takes other people telling us, God spoke to you in such a power, spoke to me in such a powerful way through you. God used you in such a beautiful way in my life. I see so much growth in you. I see so much change. Sometimes we don't see it and we need other people to speak that into our lives. Just another reason why we need people in our life. You see, gazing on the beauty of God is as simple as identifying those changes that God is bringing and naming them as being from God and His goodness. Gazing at what is, not at what's unresolved. On a kind of a side note, but it, it really does apply. Another, another way that this gazing upon the beauty of God has helped me, you know, guys, how many of you struggle? With, you don't have to raise your hand. How many of you struggle with lust, right? And gals, how many of you struggle with lust? I mean, you see a beautiful woman or gals, you see a desirable guy, and, and, and you struggle. Now, this doesn't, this doesn't perfectly resolve that issue. But if you look at somebody as being created in the image of God, which they are, if you look at them with the beauty and the purpose and the holiness that that means and you, you connect that beauty in them to God, it sure becomes a whole lot more difficult to look at them lustfully when you're gazing upon them and saying, wow, God has made you good for a beautiful purpose to bless somebody's life, to raise a wonderful family. It becomes a whole lot harder because what is lust? Lust is, lust is viewing others or things as objects that will what? meet our needs, right? Whether it's a need for excitement or a need for acceptance or a need for significance or a need for pleasure, whatever it is, it's looking at others as objects that will meet our needs. And we've already talked about what? Worship is about meeting our needs, right? Lust is misplaced worship. Instead of worshiping God, the only one who can meet our needs, we are worshiping, asking for, seeking serving, enslaved to something else. How do you intentionally gaze upon the beauty of God in your life on a regular basis? 
David goes on and talks about some of the benefits of this one thing being in his life. He, he describes it's just beautiful, amazing stuff. He says, For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted. Did you know that God wants to exalt your head? God wants to take the shame and the pain and the bitterness and the ugliness of life, and he wants to lift you up and exalt you. God wants that for you above the enemies who surround you. I find this passage so interesting because in it you see David flipping back and forth between his fear and between his faith and and between uh, looking at other things to meet needs and, and looking at God. You see this tension going on and David shows us in that the pattern of our life. That worship is all about constantly refocusing on God. You see, anything that is a one thing in life, whether this is the one thing or one thing for leadership or one, anything that is a one thing is, one of, is, is not one of those things where you master it and move on type of things. It's something that you constantly pay attention to. And the reality is, and I think David gets at this in the way he flips back and forth, is that all of our acts of worship are imperfect. And the goal of life in following God is to learn to more quickly and more consistently reorient ourselves bit by bit to get better at worshiping God, to reassign our value to one who is perfect. And yet, even though he's perfect, he forgives our imperfection and he pursues us in love. You see, if you focus on achievement, when you don't achieve, you will be devastated. If you focus on love and romance or family and you fail that God, it will be merciless and it won't forgive you for failing. Jesus is the one God who truly forgives you. And David goes on and says, At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. He's doing this in the context of all the pressure and the conflict going on around him. What holds you back from exuberant worship in your life? As I was trying to answer that question for myself, I came up with two answers. I think the things that hold me back are the fact that life is so constantly unresolved. You know, we've got this God hiding me on high on a rock, and I know that, but yet that means there's battle all around me while He's hiding me, and there's tension, there's conflict all around me. It's so Life is so unresolved. And sometimes the... Uh, still a religious thing holds me back from exuberant worship because I start thinking, God is so much better. Why would he want my meager, imperfect, sometimes off-pitch singing and shouts of joy or statements or acclamations? Yet he does want that from us. You see, religion restrains our worship by focusing again on what's not yet resolved or the distance between God and us and where we should be. But when we focus on the beauty of God, and we spend more time looking at the beauty than we do at the unresolved, then joy is something that wants to burst forth. And if it doesn't want to burst forth, he says, make it a sacrifice. Do it. Just let it burst forth. Just declare it. See, David explicitly throughout the whole text, but in verse 11, explicitly addresses this unresolved nature of life. He says, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path. Why? Because of my oppressors. 
We could restate that and say that basically that prayer is lead me clearly, securely, safely through all the confusion and the conflict and the competing demands that surround me. And then his hope, my hope, your hope, bursts out two verses later. It says, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Isn't it easy to give up on seeing some things change, on seeing goodness now? But God is bringing goodness into your life now. He's bringing protection. He's bringing deliverance. He's bringing safety. He's bringing meaning. He's bringing healing. Even if things aren't fully resolved, He's bringing those things. And then David ends with another way of stating how we live in the one thing. It's verse 14, his culmination of the whole chapter. It says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. You see, the final point is worship is about creating space in our life to wait. Go ahead and come, worship team. It's about creating space in our life to wait so that we confidently follow God in relationship instead of striving to prove ourselves in religion. The only way we can confidently follow God is through waiting for Him. You know, we think of strength and we think of courage primarily as actions. But David, this man beset on every side by pressures that are hard for even the best of us to imagine... Even on the family side, it's hard for many of us to have anything that bests the dysfunction and pain and weirdness of his family. Betrayal by brothers, betrayal by kids, adultery in his own life, uh, rape and murder among his children. and just The list goes on of some dysfunctions in his life. He's got tons of stuff going on. And in the midst of that, he says that true strength and true courage is found in waiting on the Lord in bending our wills and our plans to meet our own needs so that they can be met by Him. This week in the After the Message, we're going to give you some scriptures to read that illustrate that even further because it's two huge examples in the Bible. Saul, King David's predecessor, he didn't wait. And it cost him everything. He allowed his own desires to meet his own needs to rule the day. And it cost him everything. And David, through much difficulty, learned to wait and let God prove himself to be strong. Worship in God's goodness is not always about removing the challenges of life, but about keeping us safe, purposeful, fruitful in the midst of challenging times. And thus the invitation... When you're asked to blow out a candle and you can't blow that candle out till you have to say the, pray the one thing that God wants you to pray, what comes to mind? Last week, Carrie did a beautiful job of helping us identify a part of the answer to that question in terms of what we need to surrender. But today I want to take it one step further. Not just surrendering that one thing, but how are you not just surrendering, but how are you actively worshiping God, praising God, about those areas, those needs, those desires, those hopes that are behind what you are surrendering, what you struggle to surrender to Him. How are you not just surrendering, but worshiping actively? Where is your singular focus in worship? How are you making room 
in your life to regularly wait instead of strive because God is inviting us to ask this one thing. One thing I ask of the Lord. And that's what I seek. That's what I put my actions behind. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire of Him in His temple. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would teach us to be a worshiping people, not just a believing people, not a religious people, but a worshiping people. That you would help us to praise you and trust you and find that place of confidence and that place of peace that you want to bring us to because we learn to reorient to you quickly. Lord, you come by your Spirit and lead us in that. In Jesus' name, amen. So today as we move towards concluding our worship, we're going to celebrate communion. And I can't think of a better, I can't think of a better way to close this service. Because waiting for us is hard. All of us are trained to be initiative-oriented. We're trained to plan. We're trained to do. That's what's made us, to a certain extent, successful, right? And it's hard for us to wait. But the truth of communion is, while we're waiting, Jesus is pursuing us. God came to us, comes to us, even when we're not looking for it even when we're not ready for it, even when we're not wanting it, He comes to us in bodily form, as which we celebrate through the bread, to live with us and to forgive us because He's the only one who can truly meet those needs, those legitimate needs that you're trying to get met elsewhere. God bless. Come and enjoy communion as we worship. Worshiping God is not something we do when we feel like it. It's the one thing. It's the something that constantly reorients our life. I want to encourage you to do that today. Just worship Him regardless of whether the things in your life are resolved or not. Worship Him. Declare your worship. If you came here today, and, and we would love to pray for you, if you came with a need, a physical healing need, a decision need, a tension need, whatever, I don't care what the need is. You know, this is kind of the same thing as I talked about. Sometimes we need other people to speak into our lives to show us the good that God is doing because we get caught in religion. And sometimes we just need people to pray for us because sometimes God speaks through them, whether you call it word of knowledge, prophecy, whatever. God speaks to them. Sometimes He doesn't. But allow somebody to pray for you if you came with a need today. Grab a friend or we have a prayer area with some pods back in here. You can just go there after service and there'll be people there. God bless. Go worship this week. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go to quest.org.